Today's episode is from the second annual Lawrence First and Goal Virtual Clinic. And in this one, Dave Shula, who is the receivers coach at Dartmouth College, talks about the difference between coaching in the NFL and college football. Coach Shula has served as the head coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. He was also a coach for the Miami Dolphins, Dallas Cowboys, and now is at the college level with Dartmouth. He is the son of legendary football coach and Hall of Famer Don Shula, and he's grown up in a family with college and NFL football as a big part of it. So I think there's a lot of insight to hear from this one. He touches on a lot of things. It's definitely one you'll enjoy. To get the entire Lawrence First and Goal Clinic replays, go to lfgf2022.coachesclinic.com. When I was asked to present today, I thought I'd go a little different route considering my background. And, you know, I get a lot of people when I'm out and about talking to high school coaches out when I'm out recruiting or people in general asking me, you know, what's the difference between coaching in in college and and in the pros? And, you know, what do you like better? So I thought I'd uh, spend a little time talking about that today. You just give you my background as to what my creds are and being able to do this. And basically, I grew up in a football family. Most of you that have followed football at least the NFL over recent years or going way back would, would know my father, Don Shula, longtime coach at Colts and then Miami Dolphins. And, and he accumulated uh, more wins than anybody else in his time in the NFL as a head coach and was a coach of the, the still, I think it's been 102 seasons that the NFL has played and only one team has gone undefeated. That was the uh, 72 Dolphins, and they are very uh, proud of that. My father uh, passed away uh, May 4th of 2020. He went to his grave still undefeated, as I said in his memorial service. So anyways, I grew up in that you know football family. I, I played high school and, and played here at Dartmouth as a receiver and a return specialist. Uh, I was fortunate to make it one year with the then Baltimore Colts back in 1981 as a returner. Thought I was going to law school, but ended up uh, helping out my dad. And then 15 years later, I was still coaching in the NFL. So I, I stayed with the Dolphins. I was there from the 82, end of the 82 season through the 88 season. I went with Jimmy Johnson when he first went to the Cowboys in 89 for as his offensive coordinator for 89 and 90. And then went to the Cincinnati Bengals, worked on offense with Sam White in 1991, and then was named a head coach of the Bengals in 92. I held that post for four and a half years. Got fired in the middle of the 96 season with the Bengals. And got out of the profession for 22 years, was running a franchising company called Shula Steakhouses based out of South Florida. We had at one point 36 restaurants around the country, still up and running. Decided to back down from that, I guess, well, be five years ago now or four years ago. And I had stayed close to the program here at Dartmouth. Our head coach is Buddy Tevens. He and I played together and have been good friends for all that time. And our wives are great friends. And he was looking for a receiver coach just as I was, you know, reducing my role at Shula's. And it just worked out perfectly. Come back to my alma mater. My wife also graduated from here. Our oldest son played football here. So it was great to be back. It's a beautiful place, Hanover, New Hampshire. And so I just finished my fourth year, third season as a college football coach. So after 15 years of coaching in the NFL, now I've had four seasons or three seasons, uh, four years here in in college. And then also I mentioned family here. Uh, My brother, Mike, longtime NFL coach, also was the head coach at the University of Alabama. So was able to get that, you know, perspective from what it's like to coach at, you know, at the highest of high levels in the SEC and at Bama. 
Mike was there before Coach Saban took over. And then all three of our sons, I mentioned our one that played here at Dartmouth, he ended up coaching in college at Fort Atlantic University and Illinois, Illinois State University, and then was a GA at University of Miami for 11 years. He's out now in, in the real world. Our middle son, Chris, played at Miami of Ohio. One of his roommates was a guy named Sean McVay. So he and Chris got, at, he and Sean went their you know own ways after finishing in their playing days at Miami and ended up reuniting in, in Los Angeles when, when Sean got the job. Chris is after years as a graduate assistant in quality control at Oklahoma and Ball State and Indiana, then went into quality control with the San Diego Chargers. And then when Sean got the job, he hired Chris and he's had different jobs. Uh, he's with D line assistant in the uh, with the D line and then outside linebackers and then inside linebackers. And his role moving forward will be pass game coordinator and working with the secondary. He's got both the college and NFL perspective. And, and uh, we were fortunate in our family to go out. Most of us be able to make it out to the Super Bowl and enjoy that experience and stayed at the team hotel and agonized through most of the game. But fortunately, we're able to celebrate after. And I wake up every day and with a smile thinking that it wasn't just a dream <laughs> that uh, the Rams did win the Super Bowl. It's been a great year for us at Dartmouth. We In the three seasons I've been here, and this is not because of me, my timing was very good. And what Coach Stevens had put together, got great staff and, and been recruiting great, great kids. So we, in those three years, have been uh, nine and one every year. We're 27 and three. We didn't get the title the first year, but then the, in the last two years, we've gone back to back and winning Ivy championships. So uh, along with having our fourth grandson, December 23rd, Ivy title and Super Bowl championship in the family, it's been a it's been a great run these past few months. So, and then our youngest son, Matt, is a pilot now, but he started at where actually I got to meet John, Coach John Lowe's when he was defensive coordinator at Lafayette. My son was a defensive lineman for a couple of years, had some injuries, ended up transferring. And then he shot video for the University of Florida and then University of Miami and Miami Dolphins and and decided that wasn't for him and uh, ended up being now he's a pilot. That's my background, you know, college and NFL, and you get a frame of reference from from where I'm coming from. So, all right. So what I what I thought I, I would hit on here are recruiting versus drafting, you know, what the people are like that you're dealing with, you know, the kids versus the pros, the involvement that you have in their day-to-day -day life, and as well as their sporting life in college and professional life in the NFL, what the schedules are like dramatically different, both in season and off season, college and NFL, and then hit on a few things about the difference in the game. I was, did not realize when I got back into it in coaching after 22 years and only coaching in the NFL, I didn't realize the impact that the width of the hash marks would have in the game and, and talk about that a little bit, passing game rules, matchups. And then just wanted to finish up with just overlying principles that that are universal to being successful in both the NFL and in college traits that I picked up first from my father and, and uh, my other influences over the years in uh, both the NFL and, and then here at, at Dartmouth and some of the reasons that I saw success at both levels. All right, so let's get back up to the beginning here, recruiting versus drafting. So, you know, we know that, you know, in the NFL, if you're paying attention these days, they've got the combine is on, how that has grown since my years in the NFL is remarkable with how it's live now and the uniforms they have. And, and that starts recruiting, you know, formally uh, once the season's over. But of course, you, you know, you have scouts and every team is different in the NFL. Some, some uh, teams, for example, I know the Rams, their coaches are not even 
at the combine and they will go to very few workouts, you know, on uh, pro days on campus where other staffs are very involved in the scouting process. I know my time with the Bengals, we had a very limited scouting department. I know that's expanded for them now and they're obviously doing a great job, but we as coaches were very involved. So that it just depends on, on what your, how your organization is set up and the depth of the information that you get is different. You're getting it from mostly from scouts that have tracked these guys while they've been in college. You get some information about their you know, high school days. You get some information about what their personal lives are like, but that's very different. You don't have a recruiting war, so to speak. It's you know, when players are available and you have the pick and you value their athletic ability and potential contribution to the team, you go ahead and take them and they become yours. And then you get them signed to a contract and they are part of your organization. On the college side, you know, the recruiting process is, you know, you know, it's funny when, when I, when I talk to my brother, when I talk to my sons, or especially my son, Chris, that's, you know, coach both in college and the NFL. And, and the thing they bring up, the biggest difference to them is the recruiting process and, and not having to be a part of that when you're in the NFL. And as I found out, you know, in my four years here at Dartmouth, it is all consuming 24 7, 365. With technology nowadays, your ability to reach out, whether it's via a text or a tweet or Instagram, if you're into that, or an email, you know, you can, there's no restrictions on that whatsoever. Whereas there are restrictions on the time of year and how many times you can, you can call a prospect and when you can start calling that prospect. But there's no restrictions on, them calling you or you communicating via social media once they get past going in before their their uh, junior year. So it's all consuming and you dig deep into their backgrounds. I had a conversation last night with a recruit, you know, and one of my inevitable questions is, you know, tell me about your family, your siblings, your mom and dad. And, and that becomes very relevant here uh, recruiting in the Ivy League where we do not offer scholarships. All financial aid is is based on need. And it's available to any student that applies here at Dartmouth or in the Ivy League. So you get to very involved. And if, if it's a recruit that you're going to go ahead and, and want to, quote unquote, offer, you know, we get very involved in finding out about the financial situations that families are in and because they have to send in their tax returns. They have to send in their W-2s. They have to explain their you know relationships. If it's a divorce situation, the parents that are involved in the, in the life of, of the prospect, because that becomes part of the financial aid consideration and package. So you are getting, you know, very involved in somebody's life. And then from the prospect, you know, you're, I'm talking to, I talked to the head coach yesterday and you know, tell me about this prospect. You know, what's he like when he's not on the football field? What's he like in the weight room? What's he like in the classroom? How was he regarded amongst his peers, his classmates, his teammates? Is he a good citizen? Is he a, somebody that, you know, you point to, to the freshman and say, do it like this guy? Is he a captain? What are his leadership skills like? So, you know, we get very, very in-depth in that process and um, want to know, you know, I, when I asked Coach Stevens when I first started recruiting, first time going out four years ago in the spring, I had not ever recruited. And I walked into his office and said, hey, coach, what are the qualities of a, a Dartmouth football player that I'm looking for? And I had a 
a pad and a pen ready to take notes. And while he goes, well, there's, there's only one thing. <laughs> we don't take any bad guys. <laughs> uh, and he phrases it a little differently, but, uh, and that's what it comes down to for us. And, and, you know, you got to have the qualifications academically and, and athletically. And I know, you know, in talking with my brother and uh, my, my sons that have coached at the, you know, the major college level, the, the power five level, you know, they get into that same level of detail. You know, their criteria for taking a, a prospect is different, in, especially on the academic side. And what's happening to them nowadays is they're having to deal with, you know, the kids on their social media profiles, as we do too, you know, how they present themselves to the general public. And, you know, people ask me now, do you think that young people nowadays get into more trouble than, than you know, when you were growing up? And you know, my answer is I, I, I think less actually because because of all the exposure and, and, and everything that, you know, there's cameras everywhere. <laughs> People want to uh, post this and that. And it's uh, I think there's, you know, a lot more scrutiny on, on these young people today than certainly than, you know, in my generation and uh, with the advent of social media. So I would say no to that. So back to the, you know, the recruiting, it's all in. And once you start with a prospect, you're communicating with them in, in the different mediums, whether it's through Twitter or texting or phone calls or emails. We really don't do much with Instagram, at least as coaches at, at our program. And it's making sure that you're letting them know how much you are interested in them, presenting your college and, and what opportunities you can offer them. As far as opportunities go, I know, you know, last year with the advent of uh, name, image, and likeness restrictions being lifted, you know, I, I worked down at Wake Forest, Coach Dave Clawson, and at North Carolina, Coach Mac Brown were kind enough to allow myself and, and other Ivy League coaches and other coaches from different programs around the FCS, mostly programs around the country, to come in. And, and I was able to ask both Dave and, and Mac, you know, tell me about this NIL. And, and at that point, it was you know, just getting started. And both of them reacted in the same way and that it's a game changer. It's something now that parents and, and guardians and, and these prospects that come from these big time programs, they want to know, you know, uh, how much can they profit from their name, image and likeness playing at, you know, whatever college, university that they choose to go to. Here in the Ivy League, it's, it's has not taken as much of a role, although we see it growing. We've had a, we have a few guys that have taken advantage of the program. And there's still a lot of gray area in that, you know, if you're a, a school that's offering a significant financial aid to a, a student athlete, and then they're able to procure a, a lucrative name, image, and likeness deal, how does that affect their financial aid program or assistance? And to my knowledge, there is not a answer from the Ivy League or from Dartmouth College about that right now, still up in the air. But uh, so it's uh, it's, you know, uh, an area that is changing dramatically the way that student athletes are being recruited, especially at the power five level and just added a whole new element to what was already an all encompassing uh, process of bringing prospective student athletes onto your campus. A lot more variables than than you deal with in the NFL. for Sure. All right. So next topic, let's talk. Let's talk about the people in, in the difference in, in coaching. You know, what I term as kids here, as when they first come in, you know, your 17-year-old, 18-year-olds, or, you know, the 22, 20, 21 to 23-year-olds by the, the time they're gone and versus the, the kind of uh, issues you deal with in the NFL. So I guess my the best way I could describe the biggest difference that stood out to me was 
my first spring game we had here at Dartmouth, I met more parents in that one spring game than I did in my entire career in the NFL over 15 years. It just was not a part of, of the relationship that you had with, with your players in the NFL. I knew more agents than I did family members in the NFL. And it, and it makes sense. You know, you're dealing with adults. Some guys have their own families. You're dealing with them from a, you know, a business perspective. And, you know, now they've, their college eligibility is, is over. Now they're looking to, you know, play the game, but also, and, and in most cases, more importantly, to, to set themselves up financially for the rest of their lives and, and hopefully endow themselves and, and their and generations of their families. And with the money that, you know, a lot of these guys are getting now, it, you're able to do that. So, you know, what is the motivation of those players? You know, when you, when you get to the, to the great ones, the ones that end up being the all pros, it's, you know, they're still going to compete. They're going to work their tails off for their team. And, and, but when you get into the off season and, and putting your team together and dealing with salary cap and getting in free agency, we, as, as coaches, you're generally not dealing with agents, but you are affected by those agents and, and, and their dealings with the uh, general managers and the, and the salary cap folks that get involved with putting a team together. And decisions are made on, you know, does a guy fit in into the salary cap? There has to be a callousness there. There has to be a, you know, a willingness from the, uh, the team side to, you know, part ways with the, with a, a player, if they don't happen to fit. And so you end up, you know, cutting players typically, you know, rosters start out in the nineties when they report to training camp throughout the off season, you have to get down to 53 and then bring back a practice squad a group of guys. So, you know, you're talking about sitting down and, and I did this as a head coach. My dad did it, you know, as well as a head coach where you call it, you know, you call a player in and, and tell him that, you know, he no longer fits, you know, with what your, uh, your organization's plans are for the future. And those are, are very difficult conversations. You know, in my four and a half years of, or four years of doing it myself, you know, I had players that were very businesslike. They got it and shook her hand and wished you luck. Others were, some were kind of relieved actually that they kind of saw the writing on the wall It finally came and now they were going to move on in their lives. We had other guys that literally broke down and cried and, and uh, saw their, you know, dreams to be a, you know, an NFL player come to an end. Uh, and so in many cases, most cases, and had a very difficult time. And that's not something you have to deal with in college for the most part. So that, you know, much more of a, a business-like atmosphere You'll have players that are are making decisions about, you know, whether they're going to practice, even play in games due to, you know, them viewing their their futures and 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 prioritizing longevity. You know, the longer they're in the game, the, the more opportunity they have to make money and, and help their families. And as a coach, you understand that. But it's uh, sometimes a little bit conflicting as to, you know, what how much effort you would like to see a guy putting out versus what actually happens. And agents will get involved in that and advising their clients, you know, whether they should be practicing or not. So those are things that, again, not the general rule, but things that you definitely have to deal with from that perspective. On the college side, and I know my sons and my brother, you know, at the power five levels, we're very similar in that you are pretty much totally involved in these student athletes' lives and that, you know, 
making sure that they're, they're in a good place from a mental health standpoint. You know, you got a, a young person that's away from home for the first time and, and dealing with, you know, homesickness when they're, you know, younger players, and then making sure that they're progressing toward their degree. Very important here, obviously, in the Ivy League, different than, than a lot of the Power Five levels where that's not so much of a point of emphasis, although I know every coach would love to have 100% graduation rate no matter at what level. The reality is that a lot of these guys are, are there to get to the NFL, get to the show, and they're going to do whatever it takes to do that. And sometimes that does not involve uh, going to class <laughs> or even uh, you know trying to be a high achiever in, in the classroom. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that that's the norm, but certainly is something that they, they deal with. My sons uh, were telling me about how in one situation, uh, my son had to make sure that he would meet his player at the uh, beginning of the class. He'd come back when he knew the class was ended to make sure the player was still in the class. And then, you know, when, and I'll talk about this in a second here about discipline, about, you know, what do you do when somebody's not doing what they're supposed to? Uh, so very involved in, in that making sure that they're progressing toward their degree. Also, how you deal with parents at times is interesting. For the most part, uh, you know, the parents I've had to deal with have been terrific. We tell them right off the bat, you know, you can call them and talk to me about anything except playing time. And our head coach would say the same thing. And, you know, they have to understand that, you know, we're here as coaches trying to do the best we can for our team and for our college and, and, and winning football games in the way that we feel we can. It may or may not involve their son being in, involved in it as much as they perceive them to want to be. What I tell my guys, the receivers, and I'm a receiver coach here is, look, you know, I'm going to, I'm open with you. I'll talk with you about playing time and what you need to do to improve it or have any balls are thrown to you and those kind of things. And you need to relay that to your family, not coming from me to your family. Discipline, very different in, in both the NFL and in college, mostly in, in, you know, in the NFL, you're going to invoke financial penalties, fines, where, you know, that's not a method here in college. You know, we have what we call a breakfast club where a guy's not doing what he's supposed to do, whether it's, you know, showing up on time for meetings or practices or workouts, or we find out that we're missing study hall, which we have for our, our young players and any player that's uh, below a certain grade point average. And if they're not showing up for those sessions, they're not following up with meeting with the, the trainers when they've set up an appointment or our academic advising team. And our strength coach handles that being breakfast club. And it usually involves getting up at an early hour and making sure that they get a message that it's not acceptable what they're doing behavior-wise. So a little bit different uh, methods of trying to hold people accountable. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of the, the keys to being successful, and I'll mention this as I wrap up my talk here, is, is accountability and how you go about doing that. The methods are different, but it's a, a crucial factor to be successful, whether it's in the NFL or professional level or, or here in college. All right, let's talk about the schedule. You know, what's that like in season, off season? So the biggest difference is the length of the season. You know, it varies from, we're probably the shortest, I would say, in college. We, we are basically from the time we start our quote-unquote training camp to our last game. And, and in the Ivies, we're not eligible for the playoffs or even an Ivy championship game. So it's it's 14 weeks. I look back at, at my son, you know, I mentioned uh, was part of the Super Bowl champion Rams. From the time they started training camp, to when they won the Super Bowl was 30 weeks. <laughs> uh, that's a huge difference in investment in time. And so in season professionally, you know, you're, you're now they're playing, you know, 
17 games over 18 weeks. Then you have the playoffs plus preseason, three games, and then a few weeks before that. And it's all about football. You come in in the morning at various times, divide your the players' time between meetings, walkthroughs, practices, treatment. They usually feed them on site just for time efficiency. And then they're basically free at night. Now, during summer camps, they'll have you know, meetings at night uh, during the season, generally not. They do have one day off a week and then they get some time if they, when they have a bye week where their teams cannot ask them to be a part of anything. But usually on those, those days off, they're doing community service or getting out and uh, doing some outreach, charitable outreach, which is a great thing that pro teams encourage strongly their guys to get involved in their communities. In season at, at the college level, we're dealing with, and every school is different as to how they do it. The academic calendars are different. Some teams will practice early in the morning. Some teams practice in the afternoons where you meet generally here. We meet, we start meeting at 2.30. We're out on the field at 4.15, practice for until about 6.30. And that's on Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, shortened period meeting time and, and practice time. Basically a walkthrough for a home game if you know, we're traveling. If it's a Saturday road game, we're usually traveling. Try to leave as late as we can to allow the student athletes to go to as much class as they possibly can on Fridays. Same thing on Thursday if we play a Friday night game. We bring them in, you know, play on Saturdays and then bring them in on or Friday nights. If we play Friday nights, they get two days off, which is nice. If they get Saturday off and then we, they bring them, we bring them in Sunday and go through the video of the game, kind of wrap that up as a team, uh, workout, and then a brief workout on the field. Monday is for most college programs is the off day, which is a good day for students to just focus in on making sure they're going to class and catching up on their work and planning their work for the week. You know, one thing that's probably different here in the the Ivy League and at Dartmouth is, you know, I could say that there is not a a week that goes by throughout the entire year, whether it's off season or in season, where I have every receiver for every meeting and they're at every practice or workout because of academic conflicts. And you know, the way that we handle that. And it's a good way to help them learn what it's going to be like to be responsible when they get out into the business world is make sure that they let me know and let each of our position coaches know, you know, what their conflicts are going to be that they're going to have during the week. Try to minimize those if we can in scheduling before the season starts or, or the or the term starts. And then, of course, if anything, you know, pops up, then then that happens. But, you know, we want to make sure that they're responsible about understanding how important their time is with us since uh, we can have them 20 hours a week during the during the season. Uh, we can have them at this time of year in the Ivy League. It's it's six hours a week. And then in the spring, it's, I think, 12 hours a week. We want to make use of all that time that we can. And, and if they have a conflict, we, uh, like I said, we try to minimize that going into it, make sure that, the, you know, they don't set themselves up for a lot of conflicts when they're planning their schedule, but when they do invariably happen, make sure that they're being managed uh, the best they can. Off season, the NFL has regulated in their collective bargaining agreement with players association, how many workouts, I think it's like 14 workouts they can have, and they don't start till April. And that's before training camp starts. They regulate how many days training camp can be. They regulate how many days you can be in pads. And I think it's it's like 14 workouts in pads during the 17-week football season or 18 weeks when, when you include the bye. You know, all that is very, very regulated. Trying to keep guys healthy and also, you know, understanding that it's a long, long season. Let's talk about the game now. You know, what what have I seen that's different? And as I mentioned earlier, that the hash marks, I, I couldn't believe the effect 
that just having hash marks instead of being six yards apart, which they are in the NFL. And basically the football's always in the middle of the field. So right and left formation, depending on what hash you're on, didn't play a whole lot of, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of importance placed on that in your play calling. Whereas in college, it's it's everything, both from a defensive standpoint and, and how you defend the field. And then from an offensive standpoint and where you're going to uh, attack the defense, either into the boundary. Studies show that 89% of the time, the ball is on one hash or the other. So you're basically always playing from the hash and you're deciding and you can get pretty good indicators of how teams are going to defend you versus your formations and personnel groups, whether you're putting strength to the field or into the boundary and and then how motion affects those things, both front and, and coverage. Much, much different way of attacking a defense. You know, I think what's happened in college and, and now it's it's trickling it's trickled into the high schools around the country is is the whole, you know, run pass option games, the RPOs that you're seeing all these quarterbacks being able to execute and and basically spacing the field, giving the quarterback, you know, a read as to whether he's gonna hand off or keep it himself or or throw the ball all within the same play. And that now with those quarterbacks coming out of the high schools and the colleges that employ those systems, you're seeing those guys, you know, in, in teams in the NFL do that. Certainly with Tyler Murray and a lot of these great quarterbacks with the Ravens, you know, you're going to see more and more of those uh, guys coming in because that's the systems that they're coming from, the successful system. So, you know, the game is changing in that way. Also, the passing game rules, you know, basically in the NFL, once a receiver gets past five yards down the field, they're, they're not supposed to be touched or contacted in any significant way that's going to restrict them in any way. That is not the case in college. And I, that was a big change for me as well. I mean, you have to work harder on your releases and then in keeping hands off of you once you, anytime you're, you know, you, you step foot on the field in college, uh, no matter where you are on the field. And that actually is, is great training for guys. Now you have superior, obviously, athletes in the NFL and, and how they're able to track guys and stay with them. But there's not as much physicality involved as far as actually having to use your hands and your shoulders and, and hips to you know, separate yourself from a defender uh, no matter where you are on the field in college. So much different. And then matchups in the NFL and college, very similar matchups become a little bit more important in college because there's a bigger disparity in the talent level of, of the guys you're going against. In other words, the, you know, the, if you can get your third receiver matched up on a, on an outside linebacker or a, a nickel guy playing the nickel position or a safety, the disparity in their athletic ability is, is, is different than, and in the NFL and, and, but that is also a, you know, a great strategy in the NFL where you're looking to match up offensively against lesser talents on defense. And, you know, you could see that through, you know, what, obviously I follow the Rams and, and, and what they do and, and how they move their guys around and put them in different positions, literally move them at the snap to create matchups that they know they can take advantage of. And, and I think it, that's part of what every NFL team is doing as well. And we do it you know, here at Dartmouth and, and throughout the college game. So, you know, it's become a, a matchup uh, game, taking over strategy and in ways of being effective, you know, with the football going down the field. My overlying principles, my conclusion here, and, and this is something that, you know, these are traits that, you know, I picked up, you know, living with my father and, and, and watching him coach and then actually having the opportunity to coach with him for, for seven years in Miami. And then, you know, what a lot of the great coaches have done in history through the NFL and, and also in college. And then, you know, 
now that I've been, I've been here at Dartmouth and, and, and seeing how Coach Stevens and our, our coaches, you know, what, what we value in the recruiting process and the type of people that we, we want to bring in, be successful, and then how to be successful, you know, once they get here and develop players and the traits that, that are consistent, both with guys in the NFL and guys in college. Starts out with intelligence, you know, smart football players, guys that are intuitive, can pick things up quickly, apply what they learn in the classroom or on video to actions on the field. And it's interesting here, you know, obviously in the Ivy League, in Dartmouth, we have a lot of smart guys. Everybody's smart. <laughs> uh, but there are smarter football players than others. And that ability that's whatever that is in our brains to be able to take that, you know, what you learn by memory from a book or of watching a video and, and how to translate that into actions on the field. It's different. So having a football smart player is important. Obviously talent, you know, you have to have a certain size, the position that you play, speed, strength, physicality, what kind of athletic ability they have, you know, that's all important. And then team oriented players. You know, if you watched any of the post-game comments from the Rams, in, in listening to Aaron Donald and Matthew Stafford and, and Andrew Whitworth, their veteran left tackle, 40-year-old tackle, you know, their, their key players, Cooper Cup, they all talked about how important it was for them to help someone. They mentioned somebody else or, or a guy, a group of guys, Von Miller, same thing. You know, Von Miller talking about how happy he was to win it for Odell Beckham Jr. And Matthew Stafford, how proud he was to, to be a part of a team that won for Andrew Whitworth and, and Aaron Donald. And Aaron Donald talking about, you know, how great it was. And I've been fortunate to visit the Rams facility when you, when you go in the building and they had this a lot on their Super Bowl paraphernalia around their team hotel. You know, it says, it's we, not me. And guys that are focused on on making it about their teammates and not about themselves and how that creates a, a positive environment. And, and that's something that, you know, we've we stress here. I know it's not unique to our program, but it's been a definite game changer for us in that, you know, we we work hard at with our guys at, at you know, I tell my guys, receivers, I've said, you know, we're receivers, right? And I you know, steal the phrase from the Bible. It's in the giving that we receive. And if you can go into a game with a mindset, you're going to do whatever it takes to help our team win, whether as a receiver, whether you, we block 50 times or we run 50 pass routes and make opportunities to make plays, you know, that's what's the most important. The next uh, overlying principle, you know, paying attention to details and then accountability. You know, it's it's the little things that that make a difference. You know, my dad was a real stickler for making sure that his guys were practicing the way that they needed to play. And as a result, his his teams were the year in and year out were the least penalized in the league. And then when they don't do those things in practice or in a game, then there's has to be accountability that's that goes along with that in in some form of of discipline and making sure that those things don't happen again. You know, the old adage, the team that makes the, the fewest mistakes is generally the team that's going to win, not not the team that makes all the big plays. And, you know, and that was a hallmark to my dad's success and and something that, it, you know, has trickled down to me and, and many programs, again, universal to college or NFL success. And then the last one, not necessarily in any order here, but, you know, having passionate coaches and players. You know, this cannot feel like a job to you if you're at the college level, the high school level, the pro level, and it feels like you're going to work. 
it's your job. You're in the wrong profession. You know, this game demands too much time, too much emotional and mental investment for you to be not passionate about winning, about helping young men develop into young adults that can go on and be successful in life at the college level while working to, to win you know, championships, helping kids progress toward graduation and at the pro level, building a team working toward a, a world championship, but doing it within the rules and, and such. And, and all that takes a heck of a lot more time and effort. And like I said, you know, both mental and, and, and emotional effort to, to be successful than you could ever rationalize as far as amount of time goes. A lot of people don't understand, you know, they think when the season's over that, you know, football coaches all go off and, you know, go to the beach for the next whatever number of months and <laughs> realize all the time that's invested in that. And, uh, like I said, if you feel that it's it's work, then it's probably not what you should be doing. You know, it's it's such a great game. And I found out myself in, in, in the traits that you learn in team sports and football in particular and how it can help you be successful in business when I you know, was out my 22 years out with uh, Shula Steakhouse's franchising company. So that, you know, you have to have passion and got to be totally invested. And, and, and that translates to success both at the, at the college and the NFL level. Thanks again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Follow all we're doing at coachingcoordinator.com and follow me on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski. And remember to get the replays from this clinic. It helps support a great cause for pediatric brain tumor research and cancer services. Get those at lfgf2022.coachesclinic.com.